Well, good morning again. We're beginning a new series this Sunday on the book of Exodus, which is something that's uh, been looming before me for many years. I've never done a series on Exodus. It's a large topic, and I hope to be able to not only do it justice, but that we can learn from it as we work through this incredible narrative. I'd like to invite you to bow with me once more, and let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father in heaven, thank you for this word and this incredible story of your deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. I pray, Lord, that the many parallels and the many ways that we can learn from this story, the many little details that we often overlook, I pray that through all of them, by your Holy Spirit, that you would bring the truth to our minds and to our hearts. I pray that there might be new things in a familiar story that we may never have considered before. And I ask, Lord, that you would empower me to preach this word this morning. May the words be yours. Speak through me, your servant. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, as I said, beginning this study on Exodus, the word Exodus is derived from the Greek title in the Septuagint, which is translated as the way out. So the direct translation of this word Exodus is the way out. And I've chosen this phrase as the title for our series as it summarizes the entire narrative that the children of Israel are looking for a way out of slavery in Egypt and into a new life of freedom in the promised land. However, this incredible account is more than just, it's more than just a story. It's more than just a story of miracles and of plagues. It's more than just a story of a burning bush and Moses' encounter with God. It's more than just a wandering in the wilderness and a journey through the Red Sea. Yes, those are the elements of the story. But throughout this story, we also have a foreshadowing of the entire plan of salvation that God would yet ultimately reveal through the Lord Jesus. That just as he did for Israel, God would provide for us the way out of slavery to sin and into the promised land of salvation and eternal life in heaven. So let me ask you this morning as we begin, have you ever needed a way out of a difficult situation before? Have you ever needed a way out, looked for a way out, looked for a solution? Have you ever been in a situation where you just felt trapped, there was no way forward? And you, look, you looked around, you were, you were trying everything, but there just didn't seem to be a way out. Most of us have been in a situation like that before, and maybe some of you are in a situation like that right now. There's a story told of a man who is trapped in the worst possible situation with no way out. It happened on a February day in 1925 when a man named Floyd Collins climbed into Sand Cave in search of hidden treasure that he believed was within. Deep in a tunnel, his lantern went out, and crawling through the inky darkness, groping his way through the blackness, Collins' foot hit and jarred loose a massive seven-ton boulder. The boulder fell directly on his leg, trapping him there in that coffin-like narrowness of this dark subterranean tunnel, holding him there in a vice. For multiple days, Collins was trapped 125 feet below ground in this icy cold space, only eight inches high and 12 feet long, It was as though he were in a coffin. In the meantime, his plight became a national sensation. As the rescue attempts wore on with no success, 
Some 50,000 tourists bought hot dogs, balloons, and soft drinks from opportunistic vendors who set up outside the cave in Kentucky. But in the end, Floyd Collins died alone in this icy darkness. Unable to get past the cave-in, his would-be rescuers heard his final words as he cried out deliriously in the darkness, Get me out! Won't you get me out? And that was it. And he died in this situation. Maybe some of you can identify with Floyd Collins in some maybe small way. Maybe you've never been trapped in a cave-in before. But feeling trapped can be a terrible and terrifying experience. Maybe some of you identify him in some way where others have had a good time at your expense. Well, the children of Israel would most certainly have been able to identify with his situation and his plight. Turn with me now to Exodus chapter 1 and the account that Jamie read for us just a few minutes earlier. In Exodus chapter 1, the stage is set and it bridges the gap between the end of the book of Genesis where it says they've settled now in, in Egypt. The family has settled there as we saw in the children's story. And it bridges this gap. The story begins, biblical scholars surmise, somewhere around the year 1440 B.C. The first five verses of Exodus name the 12 sons of Israel, or Jacob, as he was better known as. And these 12 sons of Israel, who would of course become the 12 tribes of Israel, had come to Egypt as a result of the famine during the time when Joseph had become prime minister of Egypt. And Joseph, you will recall, of course, had saved Egypt and the surrounding countries from that great seven-year famine. So as now the family of this national hero, the brothers are warmly welcomed by the Pharaoh. They are given land to settle in. The land was known as the region of Goshen. And at this time of arrival in Egypt, their family numbered 70 in total. And in case you're beginning to wonder about these numbers having significance, well, they do. The numbers 12 and 70 being significant. Jesus had, of course, 12 disciples in his inner circle, and later he had 70 disciples in his outer circle. These numbers are all significant, foreshadowing things yet to come. And so here they've settled in the land of Goshen. But now many years have passed. In fact, more than two centuries has passed from the time where they settle in Egypt to the time of the beginning of the book of Exodus. In verses 6 and 7, we read this. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all of that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So the first generation has long since passed on, but their descendants in the meantime have been multiplying like rabbits. And, and they've grown to the point of being a sizable ethnic subgroup within the land of Egypt. Has anyone here ever raised rabbits? Am I the only one? A, a few of you have, so you know. Like I know that rabbits can multiply in a hurry. They love producing the bunnies. Now, anyone else ever experienced this before? If you like eating rabbits, it's a good problem. If you don't, it's a, <laughs> you can't give them away fast enough. Biblical scholars, in fact, estimate that the annual population growth rate could have been only as low as 5%, and in the span of two centuries, at an annual growth rate of 5%, the Israelites could have numbered, in fact, 2 million people by the time of the Exodus. 
This is a big growth from a 70-member family to potentially as many as 2 million people. The, the scripture simply says they filled the land. Whatever the exact number was, they are so numerous that the new pharaoh who comes into power takes note of them. And he begins to worry that they are so great in number that politically and possibly even militarily they could pose a threat to his empire. And we've only to look in the current affairs of the world today to see parallels, perhaps even in Europe, where there are many concerned over the growth of the Arab Muslim population there within its borders. Concerns paralleling this situation where this pharaoh was worried about a group of people growing up within his empire coming to the point of outnumbering the Egyptians themselves. Now, in addition to this worry, verse 8 tells us that the new pharaoh did not know about Joseph. He did not know about Joseph and what he'd done for Egypt. Now, it's hard to believe that this pharaoh, educated as he would have been, would literally have not known about Joseph at all, or hadn't been taught about Joseph. But more than likely, another translation puts it is more accurate. It says that he didn't care about Joseph. That old adage of, what have you done for me lately, comes to mind. Oh, sure, he helped us, but that's two centuries ago. And so this new pharaoh, rather than seeing the Israelites as a benefit to his empire, rather than seeing them as loyal subjects, he views them as a threat. And so he behaves the way that tyrants always behave. He becomes paranoid. He becomes controlling. And he comes up with the first of three increasingly desperate solutions. And the first is enslavement. Enslavement. Verses 11 and 12. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So here we see the Israelites having done nothing wrong. They haven't done anything to threaten this Pharaoh or, or hinder the nation in any way. In fact, they've been a benefit and a blessing to the nation, having done nothing wrong other than being fruitful and multiplying the children of Israel suddenly find themselves enslaved by a tyrant. Now, this was certainly not the first time in world history that a people had been enslaved by a tyrant, and it most certainly was not the last. In fact, many of our own ancestors suffered under oppressive regimes. But most of us, at least for my generation, we've had it so good for so long here in Canada that we can't even begin to imagine what the Israelites suffering under a tyrant would have been like. We have no concept of it. The president of the International Justice Mission, a man named Gary A. Hagen, retells the following story in his book entitled Just Courage. He writes, At the turn of the 20th century, perhaps the most brutal and grotesque human rights violation was taking place in the heart of Africa. It all began when King Leopold of Belgium decided it was time for his recently created but diminutive kingdom to have a proper colony like the bigger kingdoms of his day. Looking about the globe, however, he found that these other kingdoms had already laid claim to most of the earth's landmass. The only thing left over was the unexplored interior of Africa. Accordingly, King Leopold raised a private army to seize the land, which is now the Congo, for his own personal possession. 
Obsessing with finding something of value which to extract from his new colony, King Leopold found that the Congo was rich with rubber plants that might be used to feed the burgeoning industrial revolution of his day. But there was one problem. The work of harvesting the rubber was so difficult that the local residents refused to do it. They didn't care about the things that he could pay them with. They didn't care about his money. And accordingly, King Leopold unleashed his now infamous private army, the Force Publique. He unleashed them upon the Congolese population to force them to harvest the rubber and perform other services for him. Over the next two decades, the campaign of forced labor destroyed about half of the population of the Congo. The forced public used whips, chains, and brutal beatings to compel the labor. To force the men to work, they imprisoned and raped women they held as hostages. They burned down villages and accumulated piles of severed hands and ears in their campaign of unrestrained violence and terror. As the local Belgian authority wrote home to his government, To gather rubber in the district, one must cut off hands, noses, and ears. But for many years, this kind of terror, the nightmare of the Congolese people, took place out of sight and out of mind of the rest of the world. All of this slaughter and horror was carefully hidden from the world through an intentional, aggressive, and expensive campaign of deceit and propaganda perpetrated by King Leopold and his minions. Now, under this oppression... The Congolese people groaned, and they called out for deliverance, but, but who would provide it for them? Who could give them a way out when the world didn't even know, let alone even cared? And so again, we here in Canada, we hear stories like this. We hear of those suffering in the world even today. We hear of the siege in Aleppo. We hear of those being, being killed and murdered in, in horrific ways throughout the world, and yet they're just stories to us. We have no context to put these things into. Where can we even begin to imagine? And so as we hear this story of the Egyptians enslaving and putting the Israelite people as a nation under forced labor, what did that look like? What did that feel like for a people who had been free to now be enslaved? Now, we don't know if the Egyptians resorted to such tactics, but the parallels between the account of the Congolese people and the Israelites enslaved under the cruel and diabolical Pharaoh, the parallels are striking. Both peoples enslaved as the personal workforce of a tyrant in order to advance his empire and increase his fame, so he thinks. Well, in this situation, things are not looking good for Israel. But though they were enslaved and oppressed, God had not abandoned them. In fact, completely unknown to them, God was beginning to set the stage for the greatest deliverance in human history, a story that would be retold and known by the nations for thousands of years to come. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 12, we read this. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Now I want you to notice here in this verse that even though things are going badly for Israel, God has not abandoned them. In fact, Pharaoh's plan is backfiring. The more he oppresses them, the harder he works them, the more they continue to increase and multiply. So much so that the Egyptians sense there's something different about these people and a dread of them falls over them. And this dread and this fear 
carries over into oppressing them and trying to subjugate them even further. But we see here that the more they oppress them, the more God blesses them. Isn't this so often the way that God works? There are so many times throughout history where we see God working in such a way that the more Satan oppresses, the more he attacks, the more he persecutes, God increases and multiplies. And the greater the faith becomes. You know, we see this throughout church history. The old saying goes that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It happened, in the, uh, it happened to the apostles in the book of Acts. It happened to the early church who were fed to the lions in the Roman Colosseums. It happened during the Re- Reformation in Europe where true believers were burnt at the stake, drowned, drawn and quartered, killed in horrific ways. It has been happening right up into the present day where untold tens of thousands of Christians in the Middle East and in Africa have been deliberately targeted and systematically killed in many places. Martyrs, all of them. But in spite of all of this, in the face of all of this, God's children, God's children never need to fear the enemy. For no matter how powerful the tyrant God is greater still. So fear him. Don't fear the tyrant. Fear God. This is the powerful attitude that we find in two Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Puah. Undeterred, Pharaoh moves on now to his second solution. The, the hard labor hasn't been working the way he hoped it would, so now he moves on to solution number two, infanticide. Verses 15 and 16. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during the childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Now, of course, Pharaoh, like most tyrants, wants someone else to do his dirty work. And so he orders these two women, Shifra and Pua, to do something that amounts to nothing less than genocide. If this were to continue to be carried out as he hoped it would, it would have decreased the population of the Israelites to the point where it would no longer be sustainable. And this is his hope, to control the population. Now, in the grand scheme of things, these two women, Shifra and Pua, were nobodies. Nobodies in the grand scheme of, of, of Egypt and the grand scheme of the narrative. You probably didn't know their names before this morning, and you'll probably forget them by the time you leave. However, these two women, as incredible as this is, are named in this narrative, and Pharaoh is not. Who's the big deal from God's perspective? The nameless Pharaoh, who historians have to guess at which one it was, or these two Hebrew midwives who are given the honor of being named by God in Scripture. Two nobodies from the eyes of the world, and yet they stand up to a tyrant. It's incredible. These two ladies, imagine how they must have felt. Traveling from their simple village to the opulence, and I mean the opulence, the grandeur of Pharaoh's palace. Tall columns, beautiful furnishings, and here the Egyptian pharaoh, believed by his people to be a god, sits high up on his throne, and they must grovel down before him as he utters these orders to them. Kill every baby boy. Now this isn't just a suggestion. This is an order 
that they know their lives are hanging on. But somehow, in the face of all of this, in the face of something designed to impress and overwhelm everyone into compliance to the Pharaoh's will, somehow Shifra and Pua are not overwhelmed and they do not, they do not obey his orders. And even when the the Pharaoh learns later on of their failure to comply to his orders, and he questions them, and again they'll have been before him in his courtroom, they again turn him aside in his questions with a clever reply, that the Hebrew women are, are so robust that they don't even wait for help to deliver. We just can't get there in time, and the babies are being born anyways. They, they give this clever reply, which we wonder if they're hedging or, or bending the truth ever so slightly. But I suspect that there was some truth in what they said, that there was some, some truth to this. Because remember, the context is God has so blessed the families of the Israelite people that they are flourishing. The women are just producing, like I said earlier, babies like crazy. It reminds me of the Hutterite lady who was admitted into the delivery ward in Brandon Hospital hours after we had been, and then she delivered her seventh baby hours before Declan was born and was on her way home the very next morning, and we were there for another four or five days, and the nurses said of her, she didn't even need us in the room. I think she was just here for a break. So (laughs) there are some who just... You know, this comes easily to them, delivering children. And I believe there was some truth to the statement of Shifra and Pua. But nonetheless, whatever the, the bending of the truth was in their reply, in their clever reply to Pharaoh, don't miss the irony here. Because here, Pharaoh is thinking that he is, he's the one who's pulling the puppet strings. He is the one behind the scenes who's going to deal shrewdly with the Israelites and control the population with his, with his scheming. But here it's these two nobodies, these two country bumpkins, two women from a poor village who end up dealing shrewdly with the tyrant of an empire. Incredible. And at this point, we need to ask the question, where did these two women get the courage to say no to the Pharaoh? Verse 17 tells us, they feared God and did not do what the Pharaoh of Egypt told them to do, they let the boys live. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The midwives knew that Pharaoh had the power to kill them, yes. But they feared God more, and so they did what was right in fear of the Lord. And verses 20 to 21 tells us that God blessed them for it. The nation continues to increase and multiply, and Shifra and Pua, who were likely barren, that the text indicates, these two women who are, have given their lives to being midwives because they themselves are unable to have children, they themselves are now blessed by God, their wombs are opened, and they have children and families of their own. Talk about Pharaoh's plan backfiring. Not only do they continue to multiply, but even the barren women are now having children. Every step of the way, He is being thwarted by God. God had not left his people, even though a tyrant was oppressing them. So let me ask you today. 
Do you feel trapped or enslaved by something or anything? Do you feel that there are powerful forces working against you that you have no choice but to give in to? Well, let me tell you that these two women show us that there's nothing and no one that we need to fear more than God himself. A tyrant can order you to do something that you know in your heart is wrong, and you still don't have to give in. Fear God. Don't fear the tyrant. Don't even fear Satan himself. Fear God. Trust God. Look to God and do what is right. And no matter how long it takes, God will provide the way out. Now you may still be wondering, whatever happened to those poor Congolese people enslaved by King Leopold of Belgium by his cruel mercenary army, the force publique? Did God hear their cries? Did he send an army to rescue them? Well, yes, God did hear their cries, but no, he did not send an army to rescue them. He sent one man, a missionary. Hagen continues in his book. What finally brought it all out into the open was the courageous documentation of William Shepard, an African-American missionary of the Presbyterian Church from Virginia. Sharing the gospel and planting churches in the Congo, Shepard won the trust of the indigenous people and soon found himself confronted with the grotesque horror that was being perpetrated on the Congolese people by its Belgium rulers. Braving violence, disease, death threats, and unimaginable hardship, Shepard risked everything to properly document the atrocities, including an undercover investigation of force publique massacre that required Shepard to individually count 81 severed hands. Shepard's report of the massacre eventually launched the world's first international human rights campaign, the Congo Reform Movement. Shepard was then aggressively attacked by King Leopold himself in a nearly devastating and corrupt libel suit. But Shepard was acquitted, and the campaign eventually forced an end to the atrocities in the Congo. God heard their cries, and he didn't send an army. He sent one man to do his will. In my mind, William Shepard is a modern-day Moses. For in both instances, God raised up one man, one man with the faith and the fortitude and the fear of God to go toe-to-toe and punch-to-punch with a tyrant. And even at a terrible cost to his personal self and under the threat of constant violence and death, doing whatever it takes, God used this man to set the captives free. And those men might just remind you of another man, the God-man, the man who went head-to-head with Satan, sin, and death itself, paying a terrible price, all in order to set us free from slavery to sin. You see, the story of Israel is our story. For just as Israel was enslaved in Egypt, we are born in slavery to sin. Just as Israel was helpless to free themselves from their slave masters, we too are helpless to free ourselves from bondage to sin. And then, and now just as then, the enemy, he won't let us go without a fight. Pharaoh doesn't give up that easily, and we'll see soon that he's drowning baby boys in the Nile River. 
No one ever said it was going to be easy breaking free from Egypt's captivity, from sin and its influence. It is, mark my words, the fight of a lifetime. But even if we end up eyeball to eyeball with a murderous tyrant like the children of Israel did, just as God was faithful to Shifra and Pua in their obedience to him, God will be faithful to us. Write it down. Mark those words. God will be faithful to all who are faithful to him. To those who fear him and trust him, no matter what they face, no matter how hopeless it looks, God does not forget his people. He hears our prayers, he hears our cries, and he will provide a way out. And remember this. When God begins a good work, he never leaves it half done. God always carries it through to completion. Always. Let's pray. Father, we are just at the beginning of this incredible story. And we thank you that here in a place and a time where it looked so utterly hopeless for the Israelites, even there you had not forgotten them. You were beginning to provide a way out and that even in the face of a tyrant, we thank you, Lord, that these two women... Shifra and Pua, whose names are recorded for all to follow for all ages to come. We thank you for their testimony of bravery and fear of you in the face of even a tyrant. Thank you, God. I pray that we could be like them. That no matter what, we would not back down, but we would do what is right no matter what. Knowing that in the end, you will vindicate us. You will provide the way out to whatever end. And so, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us today. Whatever we face, I pray if there's anyone here facing something where they feel trapped, maybe the the burden of sins just weighing heavily on their shoulders, I pray, O Lord, that they would see that you have already provided the way out through Jesus Christ. That, Lord Jesus, we can come to you even right now in this moment. We can come to you in our our hopelessness, feeling entrapped, feeling enslaved, and say, O Lord, set me free. And we can lay our burdens down at the cross and know that there you have taken every last bit of it upon yourself to set us free and so that we can live for you and with you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would work in your people this morning. And as we go today, help us to remember that no matter what, we don't have to fear anything or anyone, only you, knowing that you love us and that we can put our trust in you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare now to receive communion, I would invite those who are, uh, have consented to help serve to please come forward at this time.